Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode on the CSM podcast brought to you by the students of Clausen Sridnev. I'm your host Jason, accompanied by your co-host Patrick. Thanks Jason. Today coming up on the show, we've got Music Conspiracies with Oscar, Tim and Steven, our Tech Wizard Georgian, and our Sports Section with Senan and Ben talking just about F1, and Jack talking about the problem of homelessness, and we're going back in time again with Chris, who's our history buff, to talk about the saviour of Paris. And don't forget your special interview with Danzer Beats. <laughs> Oh, how could I? So to start us off, we got Oscar, Tim and Steven with hidden messages and other music conspiracy theories. Hello everyone, you're listening to Off The Record, where I, Steven, I'm joined by my co-hosts Oscar and Tim, and we have a great lineup coming. This episode will circle around the infamous pop group, The Beatles, and some other honourable mentions. We take a deep dive into the creepy witchcraft behind one of the biggest bands ever made. So what are we talking about today, Oscar? Hi Steven. Today I'm going to be talking about the conspiracy theory that Paul is dead. Now... For those of you who don't know, Paul McCartney is one of the four members of the Beatle and is the lead singer, pianist and bassist of the band. Now, legend has it that Paul McCartney is actually dead and was replaced by a lookalike in 1966. But to truly do this conspiracy justice, I'll have to start from the beginning. Now, this story proposes that after an argument with the band on the 9th of November 1966, Paul McCartney drove away in his car after being decapitated in a car accident when he spun off the road, losing control of his vehicle. After this event, the MI5, the UK's intelligence service, advised the band to find a replacement for Paul, fearing once the news of his death got out, mass hysteria of Beatle fans would lead to civil unrest and possible mass suicide. With Beatlemania in full swing, this would be devastating for the UK. So, the Beatles held a Paul McCartney lookalike contest to find a replacement, and the winner was a Scottish orphan named William Shears, better known as Billy Shears. After undergoing minor cosmetic surgery to further align his face with Paul, the band taught him to sing, act, play, and talk like Paul. This was made easier due to the fact that the Beatles had recently retired from touring, with their last tour being in 1966, and they were set to change their look and feel for the now iconic Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album. Now, it's not exactly known where, who, or when this conspiracy was started, but the earliest mention of it was in February of 1967, printed in the Beatles book Monthly. It was a small one-paragraph story denying this conspiracy, but as we know, this only helped to explode the theory into popular culture. However, in 1969, when a caller phoned a Detroit radio station and got the DJ Russ Gibbs to play some music that had Beatles backmask messages in it. Now, backmasking is a process of putting hidden or subliminal messages in music when it's played in reverse. Now, this gave the idea to a music reviewer by the name of Fred Laborde an idea, when he was tasked with reviewing the brand new Abbey Road album. Instead of doing regular track-by-track review, as was common for the time, he decided to look deeper into this conspiracy, and if the new album had any clues to support this theory. Amazingly, it did, with the cover alone being full of evidence. Most notably, the Volkswagen Beetle on the side of the road had the license plate of this car reading 28 if, showing the age Paul would have been if he had been alive. The only problem with this was Paul was 27 when the album was mastered, recorded, and released. And more importantly, the four members of the band were depicting a funeral possession. John Lennon, dressed in white, was said to symbolise a heavenly figure. Ringo Starr, dressed in black, symbolises the Undertaker. George Harrison, dressed in denim, represents the Gravedigger. And lastly, McCartney, barefoot and out of step with the others, symbolises the corpse. Lastly, left-handed Paul was holding a cigarette in his right hand further evidence that this Paul was a fake and was not the real one. Now, 
I don't believe this conspiracy. Like all conspiracies, it has a damning amount of evidence, but this conspiracy just has a huge amount of unmissable holes. For example, one of the largest holes is the album Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Abbey Road, The White Album, Let It Be. These are said to be one of the Beatles' best albums of all time, which means that if the fake Paul was really the fake Paul, he would have been a better singer and producer and writer than the real Paul, which is a fact I don't think many would sit well with. What do you guys think? Well, I just have one question. You were saying that uh, if the public found out that Paul McCartney was dead, it would lead to a mass suicide and all that. So how popular were the Beatles back then? The Beatles were arguably the most popular band of all time, starting entire genres such as rock and roll and touring as we know it today. And with Beatlemania being in that era, which the Beatles were most popular in, the Beatles were on top of the world. So Tim, what do you think about that conspiracy theory? Um, I think there's a lot of evidence to back it up, especially since you did say it took place during Beatlemania and it would definitely crush the fan's spirit if they found out one of the essential members of the band had just died. So I actually quite believe that could be true. So do you really think they would have made a fake Paul? As Tim said, I do think it's likely. It's the whole everything. It just matches up perfectly. But I just think, personally, I don't think it would have happened. Mm. But... I can fully see why people believe it because when I first read about it, I fully believed it as well. Okay. Uh, personally, I think that theory is could be very true, but also it sounds very fake because the idea of being a fake Paul is just, I don't know, it doesn't sit well. Thank you, Oscar. So, Tim, what do you have for us today? Hi, Stephen. Today I will be talking about the secret messages hidden in music and backmasking in music. As Oscar said, backmasking is a popular in-joke among bands to hide secret recordings in their songs that is only revealed when the song is played in reverse. Artists add these cryptic messages for fun as to add a little mystery for dedicated fans to decode for their own enjoyment. The Beatles first stumbled across backmasking, recording secret messages onto tracks on albums such as the Rubber Soul album in 1965. The Beatles' backmasking habit would not stop there as fans back in 1969 started to speculate that Paul McCartney had died, just as Oscar had said, and been quickly replaced with a lookalike. The fans started to supposedly hear nods to this theory in certain lines from their tracks like Turn Me On Dead Man could be heard when the White Album's Revolution 9 was played backwards. Other theories suggested that when played backwards, mumbling by John Lennon between songs I'm So Tired and Blackbird sounds like Paul is a dead man, miss him. These messages would be quickly killed by the media when making a magazine about an interview with Paul McCartney with the heading Paul is Still With Us. Pink Floyd did a similar thing with their infamous album The Dark Side of the Moon. When played along with the movie Wizard of Oz, it is said that the album matches up with the movie through the themes and the tracks rises and falls. A lot of fans of this conspiracy argued that this is pure coincidence and it was even confirmed by the band that the song and the movie have no correlation. This can also be in the form of double meanings. A classic example of backmasking in music is the song Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. I first heard about this conspiracy when I was 14. I was listening to Stairway to Heaven on YouTube for the first time. After listening to it, a video titled Stairway to Heaven Backwards Full Lyrics was recommended. This intrigued me as I had just listened to the song and I had no clue why people would want to hear the song backwards, so I gave it a listen. It was notorious for the satanic messages that are suspected to be heard when the song is played backwards. When played backwards, the following words are supposedly heard. Oh, here's to my sweet Satan. 
the one whose little path would make me sad, whose bear is Satan, and other nods to satanic culture. The fact that the hidden message parallels the face images of the song, talking about heaven, makes it highly unlikely to be a coincidence. The Stairway to Heaven conspiracy is the most well-known backmasking conspiracy among the rock community. Some people would consider these messages to be pure superstition and just adding meaning to words that the artist had no intention of making cryptic. How do you guys feel about these messages? Well, what I think is that they are very interesting and like the Stairway to Heaven one, I like, what's the backstory behind that with the satanic messages? Apparently, just somebody listened to it backwards and... In my opinion, kind of sounds like they just made it up and it's just making words out of gibberish. But uh, I don't know, pe- people make it out to be a very cryptic song. So there's no like correlation between the band and like Satan? Well, a lot of bands can be considered, you know, connected to satanic things and like secret cults and such because, you know, they got into some pretty dodgy stuff back in the 70s. Uh, how do you feel about it, Oscar? I think backmasking is a fascinating part of music and whether it's intentional or unintentional, it can be used as a sort of Easter egg for the fans to find out and as a sort of connection between the band and the people who listen to them. And uh, how do you feel about the other messages, Stephen? I think that some of them are just coincidences, but other ones could be very, like, true because the one with The Wizard of Oz, that's just a coincidence. Like, I don't believe that, like there's any correlation between the two of them, but then with the Stairway to Heaven one, there might be just a small bit of correlation, but I don't think there's much there. Thanks, Timony. Thanks, Oscar. This podcast has been very interesting, and I hope to hear more conspiracy theories in the future. Thank you for listening to Off The Record Podcast with me, Stephen, and thank you to my co-hosts, Tim and Oscar. Be sure to tune in next time. Thanks, lads. I think that we should all start looking for secret messages in some of our favourite songs. Next up, we have our history buff Chris about the Nazi soldier who reportedly saved the city of Paris. Hello, my name is Chris, and today I will be talking about the Nazi, General Dietrich von Koltitz, known as the saviour of Paris. Who was General Koltitz? Dietrich von Koltitz was born on November 9th, 1894, Neustadt, Germany, now Prudnik, Poland, and died November 4th, 1966, Baden-Baden, West Germany. He was a Nazi army officer and was the last commander of Nazi-occupied Paris in World War II. Koltitsch was a professional officer in the German army from 1914 and only joined the army just months after World War I broke out. After the Great War, he got married and had two daughters and a son. Koltitsch climbed up the ranks between the wars, and a year before World War II he was promoted to lieutenant colonel. He served in the invasion of Poland in 1939, the invasion of France in 1940, and the siege of Sevastopol in the USSR, 1941-1942. After serving as a commander of the Panzer Armoured Corps on the Eastern Front, 1943-1944, he was transferred in June 1944 to France, where his corps was ordered to hold the Cantentine Peninsula after D-Day and the Normandy invasion. What happened in Paris? On the 15th of August 1944, the Paris police went on strike, and on the 19th of August there was a general insurrection led by the French Communist Party. 
The German garrison under Koltich fought back, but the garrison was far too small to quell the uprising, and they lost control of many public buildings. Many roads were blocked, and German vehicles and communications were damaged. With help of the Swedish consul in Paris, Raoul Nording, a ceasefire was brokered with the insurgents on the 20th of August, but many resistance groups did not accept it, and a series of skirmishes continued on the next day. On 23rd of August, Hitler gave the order to destroy the city by cable. Paris must not pass into the enemy's hands except as a field of ruins, he said. After that, explosives were laid at various bridges and monuments. Why is Koltich known as the saviour of Paris? With the arrival of the Allied troops on the edge of the city at dawn, the next day, on the 24th, Koltich made the tough decision to disobey a direct order by Hitler and not destroy the city. If for this time I disobeyed an order, it was because I knew Hitler was crazy, Koltich reportedly said. On the eve of the capital's liberation, Hitler, so the story goes, was demanding to know, is Paris burning? In his 1951 memoir, Is Paris Burning?, Koltich took credit for sparing the city of light from Adolf Hitler by disobeying the Fuhrer's orders to reduce it to cinders as the war entered its final phase. On the 25th of August, the general surrendered the German garrison, not to the Supreme Allied Command, but rather to the representatives of the provisional government, the Free French. Because Hitler's directive was not carried out, Koltich is often seen as the saviour of Paris. Hitler did not completely give up on the destruction, however, with the Luftwaffe conducting an incendiary bomb raid on August 26th, with V2 rockets fired from Belgium, causing extensive damage but leaving important buildings and monuments untouched. My opinion, does Koltich deserve his title? I think that General Koltich truly is the saviour of Paris, although at the time he didn't have sufficient weapons and resources to completely obliterate the city, he still could have inflicted massive damage to it. Koltich had the option to attempt to destroy the Eiffel Tower, Arc de Triomphe, Le Louvre, Notre Dame Cathedral and many more famous historic landmarks which are staples of French and European culture. The fact is, the general made a choice to disobey a direct order from Hitler and stand up for something he believed in, for the greater good. Koltich's family were actually at risk of being killed for his treason. This is because only a month earlier, a group of Nazi officers, including the famed Klaus von Stauffenberg, attempted to assassinate Hitler, and by sheer bad luck failed. Almost everyone who was thought to be involved were arrested and or executed. Hitler purged his army and arrested 7,000 people and killed 5,000. He also put all of his generals' families under strict surveillance, and if they were to deviate from Nazi orders, their families were to pay for it. Koltich risked his own life and his family lives to save the city that he was fond of. However, General Dietrich von Koltich was no saint. As I said before, he had no issue with the destruction of other cities, and he was involved in the management of concentration camps, where indescribable suffering was inflicted upon the Jewish population and other minorities. Despite this, the general was pardoned of all his war crimes by the Allies, as he did not destroy Paris. The story of Koltich is morally grey, as he is far from a hero, but he showed some humanity by sparing Paris, the city of love. Thank you for listening to the story about General Dietrich von Koltich and why he is known as the saviour of Paris. I've been Chris. Thanks, Chris. That was actually very interesting. I actually didn't know a lot of that uh, information, as I'm not a big history fan.
And next, we'd like to introduce Georgian to talk to us about everything tech. Hi, I'm Georgian, and in today's Tech Talk, I'm going to take you back in time to the invention of the analog computer and how it's making a comeback today, despite it being invented over a century ago. I'll be talking about their history and their comeback since 1873. This is for the techie people, but don't worry if you aren't. So let me explain. What is an analog computer? Basically, an analog computer is just like a digital computer. It inputs data, processes it, and outputs the data. Analog computers are the future of computing because of future computation demands of humans. For example, the popularity of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin has posed another problem. Bitcoin miners use huge amounts of energy to power digital computers to mine for Bitcoin. This is a substantial issue because of its impact on the climate. We burn fossil fuels to produce this energy, releasing CO2 emissions. Therefore, it's pretty clear that we need an alternative. How is it different from a digital computer? Digital computers use two digits, ones and zeros, to process information. They use algorithms which are a set of instructions to carry out this processing of data. However, they are energy inefficient when carrying out complex computations. This is where scientists are turning to an alternative energy-efficient supercomputer produced by nature, the human brain. Our brain has two-fifths of the processing power of the world's most powerful computer. The brain processes information by firing electrical signals from one neuron to another. An analog computer uses the same concept except uses a physical quantity such as potential difference, also known as voltage, or fluid pressure to process information. An analog computer is programmed by manually wiring different elements of the computer. For simple tasks, this is relatively simple. However, for a general-use computer, we would need a hybrid computer system. This is where we use both digital and analog computers. The digital aspect sorts out the wiring needed for analog computers, while the actual computation takes place through analog computers. When was it invented? The earliest analog computers were developed by William Thomson in 1873, who uses a tide predictor. It used levers and gears to produce a sinusoidal wave on a graph. It was known as a harmonic analyzer. It's used in World War II and failure. The Norden bombsight was an analog computer used by the US Air Force in the Korean and Vietnam Wars. It had two components. The analog computer which measured the trajectory of the bomb as it was dropped and secondly a linkage which was connected with the autopilot to make changes where wind and other factors are present. During testing it had a circular error probable of 23 meters which is an outstanding accomplishment of the era. However, in war conditions it had an average CEP of 370 meters. In addition, Norden could only adjust either the vertical aim or horizontal aim at a given time. The other arm was used for stabilization. The most slight change such as speed and magnitude of the aircraft could drastically change the aim. Why do they want to bring it back? Researchers from Washington University in St. Louis believe that analog computers, also known as PIM computers, processing in memory, have a hundred times more processing power than digital computers. They claim that today's computing challenges are very data-intensive and that digital computers have their limitations when it comes to processing the data. Therefore, the research into this area is most likely going to be a breakthrough for the tech world. That's all from me. Thanks, Georgian, for that insight into the tech world. Next, Fast and Furious buddies, Ben and Sennin, give you our point of view on the Formula One season. Hi, I'm Sennin and I'm joined in the studio with Ben, and today we'll be talking about the latest in Formula One and our predictions for the season. Will it be as dramatic as last year? Who knows? So Ben, where did the season start? So we started in Bahrain in March 2022. We've also raced in Saudi Arabia, Australia, Italy, Miami and most recently Spain. 
Uh, speaking of Saudi Arabia, wasn't there controversy about Lewis Hamilton and not wanting to race there due to the events going on at the time? Yes, there was controversy overall, but in the end he did go racing. Uh, speaking of Mercedes, Mercedes had a terrible start to their season with a relatively uncompetitive car, not being able to challenge for wins. Although Mercedes were lucky to get a podium in the first race due to reli- reliability problems for both Red Bulls, the rest of their results have been top of the midfield. So Ben, what have the surprises been for you this so far this season? I think definitely most uh, the most... Uh Surprising one has been the lack of performance from both Mercedes as they haven't been really kind of up to what they were last season. I was also surprised with with Lewis Hamilton's performances after saying at the end of the last season that he's going to come back stronger and now he's only competing for fourth and fifth places. Yeah, unfortunate. So Ben, who do you think were the top drivers so far this season? I think definitely Charles Leclerc has made a comeback and Max Verstappen is still gaining his number one spot. And George Russell is certainly making an impression in his Mercedes car. And Senan, who do you think the top drivers are? Well, obviously, Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc are the two fighting for the championship this year. George Russell is also having a great start with his new team at Mercedes. And Sergio Perez has finally seemed to get the hang of his Red Bull and is putting in some great performances. So next, we go to the streets of Monte Carlo for the Monaco Grand Prix. Uh, Ben, what are your predictions for that? I think, knowing the history of Charles Leclerc in his home country... He hasn't finished a single race since his F2 career, so this could be good news for Max Verstappen and his lead in the championship. So, Senan, what are your predictions for the upcoming race? I agree with Charles. I don't. He's never finished his own race, and I definitely think Max will, will take advantage of that and take home a win that weekend. So, Ben, what are your overall predictions for this season? Um, well, hopefully, I hope uh, Charles Leclerc will win the championship, as it could be his first one. And what about you, Senan? Um, I think Max will win the championship if Red Bull can sort out their reliability I don't think Hamilton will win a race this year I think Russell is going to be a consistent threat for the, the front running teams with Red Bull and Ferrari I agree with everything you said there Senin, but I hope Charles can take home his uh, first championship win rather than Max Well time will tell as we, as we saw it last year anything can happen So that's the latest in Formula 1 and thank you Ben for joining me in studio Thank you Thanks for that, lads. That was phenomenal, I have to say. I think uh, Max Verstappen for the win again this year. And next we got Jack to talk to us about the issue of homelessness in Cork and around the world. Hey everyone, my name is Jack Garvey and uh, this is my segment on the housing crisis and why Irish house prices are rising. So um, in this segment, what I'm hoping uh, you'll understand by the end is the magnitude of the housing crisis and how it affects us. Understand why house prices are rising Understand why the real estate market doesn't incentivize selling, but instead renting. Understand why most houses are to rent instead of buy. So let's move on to my first uh, point. So put simply, the housing crisis, it's a disaster. I mean, the effects of the housing crisis are dreadful. It means that most people without a high income job will need to rent and will not be able to buy a house. It also means that children will have to live with their parents well into their adulthood. Otherwise, they might have to couch surf or live in their cars. This means that we, the new generation, will have to live with our parents up until our early 30s and have our children dealing with an even worse scenario. Quite frankly, we're going to have a huge wealth divide if we do not quell this issue soon. So why are the house prices rising? House prices are rising for a myriad of reasons, including sparsity of local amenities, foreign investment funds, the market incentivizes squatting on houses and never selling, and as the value of the house rises over time, it incentivizes less selling and more renting. Inflation of money over COVID and erraticness in levels of demand across different areas of the country. So, 
Why doesn't the market incentivize selling? In Ireland, the value of houses are currently at an all-time high across the country. People who own these houses are watching the value of their houses increase, and instead of selling now, they'd rather sell later, when prices have risen further. Thus, this contributes to a vicious cycle of squatting and hardly any selling, hence why most prices are to rent. Why most houses are to rent? As stated before, the Irish market rewards patience in selling houses. Therefore, many landlords are steadily watching house prices increase with inflation and the scarcity of houses with a good location and a good infrastructure. This means that the landlords have a lot of spare time to wait as the house prices rise. Because of this, landlords are renting houses because they can wait for house value to increase while also earning money on the slide. Furthermore, foreign investment funds, or vulture funds as they're commonly called, are capitalising off this market by buying up houses in good locations and renting them out. This means that when house prices decline, there will be a selling en masse resulting in these funds pulling out of the country and possibly causing another recession. Hence, the surplus of houses to rent and the scarcity of houses available to buy. Overall, this is a very complicated and complex problem, hence why the government hasn't solved it yet. There are an incalculable amount of variables as to why this phenomenon is occurring, and there isn't much we can do to stop it. With so many reasons, I could not hope to show a full overview of the crisis. But what I do hope is that I did at least shed a little light on why the situation is happening, or at least a small aspect of that. Thank you for your attention. Thanks, Jack, for bringing to light such a horrible problem that faces us. Before we wrap up, we have the one and only Danzer Beats, who is joined with Patrick in studio. So joining me today in the studio is beatmaker extraordinaire Danzer Beats. So, Danzer, why did you start making music? There's a producer called Ghosty and I like his beats. He inspires me to make them. I was listening to songs that he produced and I searched up his name and that's when I started using him as an inspiration. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So when did you start making beats? I started making beats in 2020 and then I started posting them on YouTube in March 2021. To this day I'm still posting beats on YouTube trying to grow my fan base. Yeah, so what genre would you say you're in? Is it the same as Ghosty? Yeah, it's the same. It's Drill. Drill is like a rap where um, there's lots of collabs on it and many artists like Freestyle. It's kind of a freestyle kind of beat. Uh, what studios or music software do you use? I use FL Studio 20. It's a music editing software made by a company called ImageLine. There are many other softwares, but FL Studio is the one I think is the best. So what would you say is the normal process that you'd use when you're going to make a beat? Usually, sometimes I either get a sample from the internet or else I use instruments in FL Studio and lay them down to make a melody. So you're making these melodies uh, by yourself at home. How do you normally do that? In FL Studio... You can draw notes of each instrument to make a melody. Uh, are you self-taught or did you get someone to teach you how to use it? I watch most of the tutorials on how to use it on YouTube. Do you have any other musical background or did you just start doing it because you felt like it? I started doing it because I felt like it. So am I right in thinking that you're only 14 years old when you started making beats? Yes, you're right. I only started when I was 14. I would be up in my room bored and I started making beats and then I realised that I could go somewhere with them so I started posting them on YouTube. So I see on your YouTube videos that you're getting hundreds of thousands of views. Are you considering a future in music and how did that even happen? Well, I was making beats on upcoming rappers and rappers that are famous at the time. And I was using tags that are very famous. So people, when they search up the tags, the videos will come up. How were you able to get such a recognition from rappers from such a short period of time? Most of them just looked at my YouTube channel and then they DM me on Instagram asking me for beats. And then that's what happened. So, how do you feel when uh, you start getting recognition from these rappers that already had massive followings? 
Well, the first times I was surprised because I didn't think anyone would stumble across my YouTube channel. Then I started getting DMs and I realized that people really wanted my beats. So I started selling them to them. So how did you start doing that? And have you made any profit from doing this? Yeah, I've sold a couple small beats and two exclusive ones. There's one artist called Nate and there's another one called Brits. Both of the songs are unreleased, so they're not really out yet. There's a rapper, his name is A1, and he used one of my beats. The song has almost 100k on Spotify already. I've seen that a lot of your other videos also have over hundreds of thousands of views. Were you surprised by this massive audience? Yeah, at the start I was surprised because the views weren't going up. But then as I left them, over time the views went up. So what was your first ever published, or what was your first made uh, song? My first ever made song published on my YouTube is called The Truth. And I posted it around the 22nd of March, 2021. That's pretty interesting. So what was your most recent song that you've released? My latest being on YouTube is called Stream and it was posted on the 21st of May. So do you have any albums that are in the works? And are you thinking of considering this since your college years? Um, I might consider this, but I'll have to go to college first so I can secure myself just in case it doesn't go well. Yeah, that's a pretty smart decision. Do you still think you'll be selling beats during college? As long as I'm making them consistently, I think so. Is there anyone in particular, like maybe in the Irish drill scene, that you'd like to work with? Probably AV9. Now who's that? They're a drill group from Dublin and they make really good songs. One of their songs is called The Truth. So you said you're making your beats at home. Do you think you'll ever either hire or rent a studio that you could use for a while? At the moment, I think maybe yes, later down the line. Is there anyone that you'd like to work with in a studio in particular, like... I would like to work with Diggity. He's an artist from London and he uploaded an album called Naughty by Nature and it's really good. So is there any other music at the moment that you're making and any other albums that you'd recommend? I recommend the album Naughty by Nature by Diggity. So where in line could we find you if we wanted to find your music? If you want to find me, you can type up Danzer Beats on YouTube. Are there any other platforms that you're on? I'm also on Instagram, so you can find me on that as well. Thanks, Danzer. So we're going to keep an eye out for all of your future works and all of your future albums. And thank you for coming into the studio. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Thank you so much, Danzer, for coming on the show. And hopefully we'll get an album soon. So just before we finish up, I'd like to thank all of our guests once again for teaching us all about music conspiracy theories and all of the things that we learned at F1 from Senan and Ben. What you learn about that there, Jason? Uh, I don't know. It's been one of a hell of a journey. Um... To be honest, Max Verstappen for win, as I said earlier. Um, I think like Hamilton's out of the race, so Verstappen for for number one. Oh, thank God he's finally out of the race. Let's hope Carlos Sainz can come in clutch on that one. So, Patrick, what do you think of uh, transition year as a general uh, topic? Uh, it's not too bad in general, you know. You know yourself, due to like COVID and things just coming back up. I think we made the most of this year. What do you think about yourself? I'd have to agree with you there. I tried to get as as much uh, done as I could. Uh, and I really enjoyed transition year. I've learned a lot and gained a lot of experience. Yeah. And for any people that are going into TY, I just recommend to take every single experience that's given to you. Then you're going to get the most out of it. So once again, we'd like to thank all of our teachers, Miss Cleary, Miss Gary, Miss O'Shaughnessy, Miss Long, and Miss Arnold. This was recorded at the Republic of Work, and the production and sound was done by Elaine Smith. Thank, thank you all for listening. listening.